This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha, located in the caverns deep below the metro area, it's our pleasure to welcome you to episode 637 of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Book Podcast. I'm your head number one, the internet's Joe Patrick. Hey, I like how you switched up the location in the intro this week. Well, I just want to let people know we're not just like deep underground, we're in caverns. Yeah, we're not like in the sewers or anything. Yeah, 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 we're not mutant ninja turtles. And my name is Matt Baum, your head number two, the cosmic long box returns this week to force us to explore comics of days past but as always it comes with a theme and this time it's a tale of tragedy as we discuss comic characters that are trapped in a suit after that we'll reconvene in the thn sanctum sanctorum to discuss our must read picks for next wednesday october 6th but now the cosmic long box is vibrating with weird energies and we can't begin to understand or escape them pray for our very souls because the Cosmic Long Box beckons! We find ourselves on another trip into the comic time stream, this time to investigate one of comic's strangest tropes characters trapped in their own suits. Now, sometimes it's contained them, other times they just got stuck there for really stupid reasons. As you're about to hear for yourself, Joe Patrick, who is our first victim? Hey, hold on. My first one is not stupid. Uh, and also, just just to cut off any comments. <laughs> the first part of your first one is totally stupid. Yes, right? but you'll, no, you'll, you'll quickly notice that I did not review the first part of my yeah, first one. Uh, just to cut off any comments at the pass here, uh, when we say trapped in a suit, we mean all iterations of trapped in a suit, like skin made out of metal, turned into energy and forced to wear a containment suit, yada, yada, yada. It's not all just like guys that got to wear super suits for reasons. You know what I'm saying? Speaking of, my first pick is Superboy in the Legion of Superheroes number 195. It's from DC Comics. 1973 was the year. It's written by Carrie Bates with art by Dave Cockrum. A new candidate for the Legion comes in the form of Erg One, a teen who was converted into energy, which is stored in a containment suit, as I just mentioned. When his ability to duplicate existing Legionnaires' powers fails to impress, he is denied membership, but he also has a secret power which he dare not reveal. <laughs> Following this first and almost final appearance, Erg One would reappear as Wildfire and go on to a lengthy career as one of the Legion's most powerful members, as well as a doomed on-again, off-again romance with Dawnstar, who has not yet appeared in Legion continuity at the time of this story. I kind of loved uh, how he's like, I can do everything you guys can do. I can shrink. I know karate. I know, like, he do it, like, all the stuff. And they were like, eh, we've already got people to yeah, do right. that. I mean, that's, yeah, I'm, and I'm going to mention that. This dude uh, can do anything. <laughs> right. It, you know, that seems like a, technically, all he did was show you how he can duplicate other Legionnaire superpowers, but don't you think that he could also duplicate any of your villains' powers as well? well not like, just that. Let's say Bouncing Boy doesn't show up to work that day. You know, right, like yes. And uh, again, I will mention I, that here I briefly. Bounce. Uh, <laughs> shortly, I will mention this. 
while Superboy 195 is where this story originally appeared, I first read it in the pages of DC's Blue Ribbon Digest number 33 when I was four years old. It features one of my favorite Legion tropes, the new member tryout. It also relies heavily on the Legion's antiquated bullshit rules. Yeah. Come up a lot in yeah. tryout stories. They're obsessed with these. Yeah. <laughs> uh, erg. He, it's E R G. It's lowercase. Like it's spelled like a regular name. E capital E lowercase R G. Instead, it's, it's got to be Erg. R G one. Yeah. I know it should be E R G one because Erg one sounds stupid. Uh, erg is rejected because he's a one man legion. Uh, again, useful. Right. Instead of having his own unique power set, despite the fact that the team would repeatedly break that rule and had already with characters like Ultra Boy, Monel, Lightning Lass, Chameleon Girl, Supergirl, Magno, and on and on and on. Right. Everything about his design kicks ass in the most 70s way possible. Being firmly entrenched in Dave Cockrum's horny Legion era, Erg's full body containment suit, by the way, it's head to toe. He has no skin. Uh, still makes him look like a bare chested hunk in hot pants. Oh yeah. Complete with a winged star chest tattoo and, Oh, and pirate boots, which are my favorite part. Harry Bates's script is solid. If a little slight, it's also a little cheesy, you know, in, in that kind of dated way, uh, after the team up, a very small contingent of legionnaires is sent to stop a deadly crop devouring machine. When they fail to stop it, a stowed away Erg one has no choice but to sacrifice himself by revealing his secret power, thus saving the day and earning the Legion's respect. Now, when I read this in 1983, I was shook for a few pages <laughs> as the Blue Ribbon Digest contained a couple of future wildfire appearances as well. Uh, if I had just waited and, and read on, I would have been like, oh, he's fine. <laughs> <laughs> like right there in the digest. <laughs> yeah, he just like he like they he just they just like leave the the hatch open on his suit. He floats back into it. Dave Cockrum's art is tremendous. And I think it holds up to a lot of classic superhero standards you still see today. Superboy 195 will be forever seared into my memory as one of my first and favorite comic stories. And one of the tales responsible for my love of the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, don't read the lead-in story, which is just God, a Superboy story <laughs> about how a blind boy helps Superboy stop a mad-made uh, sphere-shaped hurricane. I don't even know Thunderball. Uh, they keep calling with, it. With, yeah, with the power of radio. I right. mean, it's it's yeah, it's dumb. He basically like make, gives himself Daredevil powers because he's blind. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, and I may be biased, but I think that the wildfire story holds up today. I think it's wonderful. I'm giving you this a buy it. Uh, fun fact, this story places Legion HQ at 344 Clinton Street in Metropolis, which is the same address as Clark Kent's apartment in the 20th century. Nerd. I think the only the main problem that I have with the Legion is not the Legion's fault. It's that I never read it when I was younger. I just didn't. Well, like, and revisiting mm. some of this stuff when I'm older, like this dude shows up with all these powers. Imagine Rambo. Rambo yeah. comes and he's like, I want to join the army. And they're like, well, what can you do, Rambo? And he's like, well, I'm like a one man army. You drop me in someplace. I'll kill everybody. And I'll get the POWs out. 
and I'll fight with the Taliban, whatever you need, man. I'm Rambo. And they're like, I don't know. We got a whole army that already does no, that. Well, oh, and, but also we have a rule against killing, so that's out. <laughs> no, I'm just uh, saying. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, no, no. I mean, I don't think you have to be young to get into Legion of Superheroes. You just have to read the right stuff. I'm yes, not, this older yeah, stuff is, yeah. is antiquated. Obviously, yeah. it's antiquated. And, and like, it's fun. Sure. I And I like the idea of the character. He's an energy, you know, character. That's cool. His design kicks ass. He looks He's cool made out of antimatter energy. He does look cool. Right. Uh, I, anti-energy. Is that right? Anti-energy. Yeah, whatever. You know, whatever comic the hell book, that means. Comic, so, comic book shit. Yeah. And, and again, it can do whatever you need it to do. Um, I will give this story a buy it. I'm giving the issue a leave it because it's super. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ew, buy, go, buy the re, buy the reprint, buy it on Comicsology for a dollar. I, I even texted what you Joe do. and was like, you could have warned me that this first story has nothing to do. I with mean, look, don't get me wrong. I still read the whole thing and I, I was like, too. oh my God. Hated it. Uh, yeah, no, the first story is very bad. Um, written by the same guy, Carrie Bates, great writer. There that first story is garbage. My first victim is the Rhino. This is an Incredible Hulk, number 124 from Marvel, 1969. It was written by Roy Thomas with art by Herb Trimpey. The Rhino is probably best known as a Spidey villain. He made his first appearance in Amazing Spider-Man, number 41, back in 1966. But he would pop up in the Hulk quite a bit. Alexei Sestevich was your typical Russian mafia thug until he decided to get a leg up on the competition by undergoing several months of life-threatening chemical and radiation treatments to get yeah, him yeah. superhuman strength and permanently bond him to an armored rhino suit. Some guys right. get a bunch of crazy tattoos. Other guys go and bond themselves to their suit. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. It's Russia. It's a crazy place. He's not known for being a brainiac, you know. The Rhino became a very popular character and enough fans would write letters asking how he used the toilet that Marvel editorial decided to add a section to his bio in the deluxe handbook of the Marvel U that details a small, almost invisible flap in the butt area that he can open to do his dirty work. Dear Marvel, thank you for addressing this problem. I have a follow-up question. How does he clean the flap? That's not important. It would turn out that the process wouldn't be as permanent as we thought. And the rhino ends up getting out of his costume several times only to end up once again, trapped in the suit. <laughs> I chose this issue because it's actually the second time rhino gets trapped in his suit. And it's thanks to the super genius level IQ of the leader. Although once again, Alexi is completely on board with permanently putting himself in the suit. To be fair, the Hulk had beaten the hell out of the Rhino not too long ago, and Alexi wanted another shot at him. The I would argue, look, I'm saying it. I'm I gonna, have to say I'm it. I'm going to cut this. Don't cut it. <laughs> I'm not going to argue. I'm just saying that as I'm reading this, Alex, there's nothing in here that says Alexi is going to be permanently trapped. I don't should he disagree. Have known should he have known better? Yes. To that statement, I don't smart? disagree. He should have known better. Is it smart for you to make a deal with the leader? No. <laughs> no. But again, Alexi's not known for being a brainiac. No. I'm just saying he was like super suit and extra strength. Heck yeah, sign me up. Well, I would argue that the Rhino is kind of a tragic character and they have constantly revisited that whole- I think later on, Joe Kelly would give him more of a tragic yes. history when they were like, oh, he's a Russian spy, not some Brooklyn thug. Well, like, but he's not always just talked Joe like Kelly. some- 
he, some palooka in Mark, like Mark Wade's Kazar. He's like been depowered. Oh yeah. Right. And he's yeah. Super weak. And he's sitting like in the suit with a drape right. over him and they shoot yeah, him yeah. and he, and he fills it back up again. Like he's constantly wanted to be powerful and right. more than he is, but it involves like, okay, well you're trapped in this damn rhino suit to do that. Are you cool with that? And he's like, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> he don't know no better at the end of the he day. He don't know no better. Uh, there's a, you know what? I'm going to save this for the end. Go on. Go on with your review. Okay. Sorry. The whole world seems to know that Bruce was the Hulk. There's a newspaper that's reporting the Hulk is dead and Betty is planning a wedding with Bruce. They're like, the Hulk's getting married. So the leader decides to send the rhino to kill Bruce on his wedding day. And just in case the Hulk does show up, he powers up the rhino even more to deal with the Jade Giant. Now, I've been meaning to check out more of the Thomas Trimpey Hulk issues for years now. And if they're all like this issue, they're going to be a treat. Trimpey's art is fantastic. Oh, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Even if he is doing kind of a Kirby impersonation and Thomas's script is a mashup of professional wrestling and science fiction. I loved this and I really need to dig into this iconic Hulk run. Also. I love the rhino. I'm giving this a buy it. It was I just fun. I mean, I love the rhino too. And, um, you know, like the thing about him being trapped in the suit, uh, it's, it's a fun trope and that's why we picked it. And with guys like him that are constantly like, all right, I got out. Maybe this time things will go better. Right. And it's like, and it's like, no, Rhino, no, it won't go better. Stop you, it. You just always um, end up crawling right back and go, all right, put right. me back in. <laughs> like, um, uh, I remember very distinctly there was a miniseries in the 90s called Deadly Foes of Spider Man, uh, not to be confused with Superior Foes of Spider Man by uh, Nick Spencer and Steve Lieber. Or the foeiest uh, foes of Spider Man. The foe, yeah. Yeah. And it was all about the Sinister Syndicate, which is Hydro Man, the Shocker, Boomerang. Uh, the beetle rhino. There might be one other that I'm forgetting, but uh, and like the one of the main plots of that four issue miniseries is oh, Speed Demon is the other is that the rhino is trying to free himself from this suit so that he can live a life and fall in love and all that shit. And he does, and it's a happy ending for the rhino. What do they do? They put him right back in the goddamn suit, yeah, man. Later, next time he appears, um, there's a um. This is used by it. It's great. Uh, the leader's constantly shooting things with a brain beam instead of just like pointing at yeah, them. Yeah, I love it. Like you're 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 not doing anything with that brain beam, leader. You're just pointing at something. Why don't you just point? Maybe he's very proud uh, of his brain beam. You ever think of that? I guess. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess <laughs> I would be the too. guy with no brain beam. Right? I, fair, fair. <laughs> yes, it's true. Um, Joe Kelly, uh, much later on in the brand during the brand new day era of Amazing Spider-Man, he would remember. Oh, hey. The rhino was a Soviet spy. Why does he sound like, why does he talk like the thing? Why does he just sound like some random palooka from the block? So he made him this like very stoic, um, not necessarily book smart, but definitely um, cunning, you know, like a guy that, yeah, you could buy that this guy was was a Russian agent and he like falls in love and he's out of the suit and it's this whole tragic backstory where every time they pull him out, Every time he gets out, they pull him back in like Al Pacino and Godfather three, but better. Um, and, uh, like, like that's great. Um, there is a two part story in the pages of a forgotten title called, uh, Spider-Man's tangled web, which was an anthology series where creators would come on and do these like weird or, um, 
off the beaten path kind of takes on Spider-Man's supporting cast. Yeah, it was great. Uh, it's uh, it's where there's a there's a very very the most famous issue of that series is called Severance Package. It's about the Kingpin. It's written by Greg Rucka with and drawn by uh, Eduardo Rizzo. It's excellent. But Peter Milligan and Duncan Fregredo did a two page uh, a two issue story called Spider-Man's uh, pardon me called Flowers for Rhino. Oh my god, it was amazing. Uh, and it is oh exactly god. what it sounds like. It is Flowers for Algernon starring the Rhino where uh he goes through a brain operation that turns him into a super genius. Yeah. Uh he immediately becomes unstoppable because he knows how to like he can outthink Spider-Man in battle. Uh, and, uh, he starts to start, he tries to start his own crime organization and he falls in love with a mob boss's daughter. He writes a novel, uh, and, um, his intellect fades away and it's so fucking sad. Yeah. It's gut-wrenchingly <laughs> uh, sad. And it, uh, but so like, if you want a good rhino story, there are lots of them. This one that Matt chose is a great classic rhino, uh, rhino story versus the Hulk. Roy Thomas. Herb Trimpey. Something about Herb Trimpey that I've noticed, uh, he's come up a lot in the Cosmic Longbox. And something I've noticed is that he had a tendency to change his style to mimic the popular oh, yeah. artists of the time. Like, this is very Kirby-esque. Um, That's exactly like, why he's not more famous. Like, in the 90s, it, he would he made a con concentrated effort to look like Rob Liefeld. Yeah. You know, and when uh, by the time that Wolverine, uh, the first appearance of Wolverine around 181, 180, or 180, 181, his art was d even different than it is here. Oh, definitely. And uh, yeah, but he was doing like John Bushima by that point. Yeah, yeah. Wow. He's like an artistic chameleon. Yeah. He's wonderful. And this is a wonderful issue. It's a buy it for me. I am the rhino. Nothing can withstand me. Next up for me is Ms. Marvel number one. It's from Marvel. You guessed it. The year was 1977. It's written by Jerry Conway with art by John Buscema. Speaking of John Buscema. That's right. A new superhero has appeared in New York City, Ms. Marvel, who has been seen breaking up a crime in progress being conducted by the Scorpion. The Scorpion, a.k.a. Mac Gargan, holds J. Jonah Jameson, Carol's new boss, and the man who hired him to become a Scorpion in the first place, responsible for his being trapped inside his weaponized costume. I did not know this. I didn't know yes. it was Jonah's fault. It's true. That dude should be in prison. Like for, yep. for so many things. He, he also he funded like the creator a, of the, the creator of the spider slayers. Yeah, but oh, he was yeah, like many, never many, a super villain. He's just like nope. editor in chief and a piece of shit. <laughs> he's a very bad, yeah, he's made some very bad choices. Uh, the scorpion would go back to his roots, fighting Spider-Man off and on for decades, sometimes stuck in the suit, sometimes not. If you read his first appearance, like I did, uh, trying to research the character, he ain't trapped. He's not trapped. He goes through the thing, and then he drives to whatever event he's sabotaging in street clothes, and then puts on his costume in the back of a truck. Yeah, I'm curious as to when that actually happened, when he got uh, yeah, I don't know. straight hey, up uh, stuck. Uh, I, I, I couldn't tell you. Uh, he would eventually gain another deadly suit as the new host for the Venom symbiote after Eddie Brock's death. Gargan would once again become the Scorpion, plaguing Spider-Man and Jameson on numerous occasions before his most recent appearance during the Sinister War, uh, just a couple of months past. Like Wildfire's first appearance, this issue was my first encounter with the Spidey villain, but it was in the pages of the Superhero Women collection, which was one of the classic Marvel reprint editions that the publisher put out before the dawn of the trade paperback, like 
bring on the bad guys or son of origins of Marvel comics. Uh, you remember him if you're an old like me. I was fascinated by the idea of a villain hired by somebody like Jameson and how his life was ruined in the process. Reading it again now, there's actually very little about that in this issue. Uh, there is maybe one line where Gargan shouts about being trapped in the suit. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, he just runs around making the reader think that he's mad at Jameson for being a badass. <laughs> for making him into a badass, sorry. Right. Still, it was fun to revisit this appearance and see him go up against a different hero. Uh, naturally, this issue is heavy on the Ms. Marvel stuff. And I love the idea that Carol didn't even realize that she was Ms. Marvel at first, thanks to some uh, faulty memory stuff going on. She was a much different character back then, obviously, but still very much a boss. She doesn't take any shit from Jameson when he wants to turn the Bugle's progressive women's magazine into a good housekeeping clone. Conway's script is really fun and progressive as well. All the talk about women's lib seems a little quaint today, but it was totally relevant to the time period. Yeah, it was. It, it like it, it, it's it easy to look at this and be like, "All right, dudes trying to write empowered women." But like, yeah, think but, about but what it was. was on they the were stands. in the they were in the grips of that in 1976. Right. And 77. think about what was on the stands and shit at the time. Right. So. Yeah. No. The, yeah. Absolutely. John Buscema's art is incredible. His action scenes are exciting and larger than life. And there are some panels that are just as impressive today as they were when I was little. Like there, that scene where there's a scene where uh, Ms. Marvel smashes the vat of whatever chemical stuff that Scorpion is dangling Jameson over and it goes all over Scorpion and he runs out of the lab screaming in pain on fire, dripping with burning chemicals with his arms like in this writhing position and like that was seared into my mind as a kid. And I looked at it again and it took me right back there. Everyone talks about Kirby, Ditko and Ramita when they talk about the silver age and rightly so, but big John might just be my favorite superhero artist of the bronze age. Oh yeah. Easily. Ms. Marvel number one serves as both a great primer for a legendary Marvel hero and also a fun appearance by one of my favorite underused spidey villains i'm giving this a buy it yeah i love the scorpion and like mac argan's another one where they have definitely tried to paint him as several different things where he's a victim he's crazy yeah. he gets super powered up later and like but it's always like even when he does get out of the suit he ends up in some like even more crazy version of the suit <laughs> right like i looked at i looked at other appearances right like there's a very uh like you you would recognize the covers after i mentioned them there's a two-part story uh in the mcfarland era with the scorpion where he gets that super long spiky tail yeah because like, like, he doesn't even have a stinger here it's no like, it's just like it's a, just club. Like a blunt end that he just whacks yeah, yeah it's like a blackjack <laughs> yeah they should have called and, him the beaver or something. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like even that, even that appearance where he gets like way amped up power wise, he's not mad about being the scorpion. He's just excited that he's getting a way better tail. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, so to, yeah. it was hard to find, it was hard to find a comic where he's like, I don't like being the scorpion and it's your fault that I'm this way. Well, I mean, even in this, he's like, Mac Gargan is dead. You killed him. I right. am the scorpion, you know, like right. he's obviously you should probably see a therapist and work through this, but instead, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got issues. He's just going to kill J. Jonah Jameson. And quite honestly, if he does, the Marvel universe is a better place, Joe. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe he's already done the spider slayers at this point. I'm so not I don't know. Murder is the answer. Okay. But I will say if J. Jonah Jameson gets killed by the scorpion, Peter Parker's life is a lot better. <laughs> right? Well, that I'll grant. I'll grant you that easier for sure. It's easy. It'll be easier at the very least. Sure. I could just hear old Jameson when he gets this story. 
Army's top secret component, stolen by that menace to society, Spider-Man. Oh, my next victim. Actually, I have two next victims, and I'm giving myself bonus points for this one. This is Secret Origins Annual, number one, from DC 1987. It was written by Paul Kupperberg with art by John Byrne. Like I said, bonus points for this one because it features the origins of two characters trapped in their suits. Cliff Steele, Robot Man, and Larry Trainer, the Negative Man. Well, three if you count uh, Negative Woman. Oh, yeah, Negative Woman, too. That's triple bonus. These are the post-crisis versions of the characters. Pre-crisis, the whole team was killed in the final issue of that volume of Doom Patrol when they blew themselves up to save a small fishing village because the creative team was so upset about the cancellation. They were like, fuck it, we're killing them. Yeah. Neither character's origins changed a whole lot here. Cliff Steele is still a race car driver that was killed in an accident during the Indy 500. Dr. Niles Calder would rescue his brain and transplant it into a robot body. The only major change was that Calder is responsible for the accident now. Larry Trainer was a military test pilot that flew too high, encountered sunspots that disabled his jet, And, you know, he crashes, but it also gave him strange powers and irradiated his body. Trainer has to be wrapped in special bandages to be around anyone so as not to give them cancer because he's so radioactive. But he can project a black electrical energy being composed of an as of yet unidentifiable radioactive substance from his body that can fly, absorb and project energy and also sounds like it gives people cancer. Calder. Not because he can like he can like rescue kids from train tracks with it. Yeah, so maybe uh, later they get tumors. I don't know. Maybe the kids got. I mean, I guess it's better than getting hit by a train. I don't know. Yes, Calder was also responsible for trainer's accident post crisis. Time out. Like I know that you probably read that in the wiki, but I don't think that in this issue they say that Calder is responsible. They don't. But the whole story that that Doom Patrol goes into is that Calder was putting together a team and caused all these accidents. Okay, he's right. sort of like it, in in this issue uh cliff is very much he's very much like i loved that man like yeah he no res- like like he they saved don't me. know the horrible wow. truth yet i was just going into the whole like right next i will talk about this issue but like yeah, yeah. i'm just going into the whole post-crisis idea of like this anti reed richards type thing sure yeah no uh anti anti um anti professor x almost because he's uh the team of freaks and the whole thing i guess I've never read these secret origins, but I know Joe loves them. The issue could have just been a straight origin told by an unseen narrator, but instead, Cooperberg has Cliff visit the Doom Patrol's old HQ, and of course, he has to recount the origins of the whole team to clear his ID with security AI. He mentions the Titans rebuilding him recently, which I don't know what that's about. But- that was during the Wolfman Perez. Uh, okay. He was rebuilt. Yeah, he was rebuilt. Uh, when he returned, the Doom Patrol returned in the Titan, uh, the Wolfman Pressing Titans, and Cliff had a new body of a like that sleek, pointy-looking robot. Body oh, okay, all right. Was not nearly as much fun as the old clunky one. The Doom Patrol was definitely not a team at this point. Now, behind the scenes, Cooperberg had been trying to relaunch the Doom Patrol for years, and this issue was a setup for his relaunch that came later the same year with Steve Lytle on art, who would later be replaced by a very young Eric Larson. In his yep. first DC work. This issue was fantastic. And I can see why it got readers excited about the Doom Patrol again. At this time, John Byrne was just one of the best artists in the business. And 
He makes the issue look excellent in typical John Byrne fashion. It's too bad he wasn't on board to save Cooperberg's Doom Patrol. But after sales decline, Paul was removed from the book that he championed. And a new guy named Grant Morrison was brought in to shake things up. You may have heard of him. Mm. I'm giving this a huge buy it. It was just fun. Yeah, no, this was great. Uh, so speaking as somebody with some knowledge of pre-crisis continuity, uh, they didn't really change anything about the history of the Doom Patrol for this. Uh, like later on, as you said, they will they will reveal that the chief, Niles Calder, is, is responsible for everybody's accidents. Right, that's exactly what uh, I said. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, but like at the time, like this, they played this totally accurately. Like they didn't know the chief did any of that. Right. All that stuff happened where the Doom, the Doom Patrol still died. There was a new Doom Patrol in the 70s. Um, that uh, was short-lived. They broke up, as it's stated in the comic. There was a return of the Doom Patrol in the New Teen Titans. Um, and but yeah, at the time, the the Doom Patrol just wasn't a thing. And um, that was Cooperberg's big hook, though. They were gonna find yeah, all out. Of that, yeah, we were trapped here by Calder. He did all this. Yeah. Oh! Uh, but yeah, all of that, all of that history is intact. Like that's that's the Doom Patrol. Yeah. You know, like, uh, and uh. It's great. The Doom Patrol is such a weird, wild uh, concept. And the fact that like they kill the entire team only to bring them all back eventually uh, is is just crazy to me. Um, The best part is they revealed again Calder saved Robot Man's brain two times. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, it happens. Cooperberg and uh, Lytle and Larson's run only lasted 17 issues. Yeah. Um, Grant Morrison came on with issue 18. And then, uh, you know, they kind of blew the door off the place. But uh, this issue is wonderful. It is the origin. It's not only the origin of the original Doom Patrol, but it's also the origin of the new Doom Patrol. Yeah. <laughs> including Negative Woman, who is in this issue for some reason. And uh, it's it's beautifully drawn by Byrne. It's a huge buy it. I really liked it. It's sad, too, like reading... Uh, I, I just, I did, I kind of dove into the history in this one, but like Cooperberg championed this so hardcore. He'd been trying so long to like relaunch the Doom Patrol and, and bring them back to their glory and whatnot. And they were like, all right, Paul, you got it for a little over a year and then you're fired. <laughs> it's just, just, oh man. He, he had his chance. Poor I guess. guy. <laughs> Shazam! Speaking of victims, I felt like a victim when I read Blue Devil Number 1 from DC Comics. The year was 1984. It's written by Gary Cohn and Dan Mishkin with art by Paris Cullins. Stuntman Dan Cassidy is sitting pretty, having invented an impossibly sophisticated special (laughs) effects rig that he uses to star as the demonic villain in the latest Hollywood blockbuster. Well, that's what you do when you can't get a starring role in a movie. I guess when you're too <laughs> ugly to be, a, yeah, you're too ugly to be Tom Cruise or whatever. Uh, unfortunately, an idiotic series of events leads to an encounter with a real demon and Dan becomes trapped inside his own invention. In future stories, Blue Devil would go on to fight crime for several years, eventually earning a spot in the Justice League of, of America, one of the shitty ones. Uh, Seeking fame and fortune, he made a deal with Neron that led to the death of one of his closest friends and his own when he rebelled against the Demon Lord. Resurrected as an actual demon, he would join a later doomed version of the Justice League Europe, die again, and then Shadow Pact 
after his re rebirth. They can't uh, stop killing this poor bastard. <laughs> well, you know, when you're a, when you're a demon, when you're a demon, dying is probably not not a big deal. He would return during the New 52, and as far as I can find, his last significant appearance was during the Forever Evil crossover. And when I say significant, I mean that he was there. Yeah, I don't think he was like a, a key part of it. Wasn't or anything. he part of like Justice League Dark for a minute, or was he just hanging around? I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember seeing him. No, I don't think. Maybe so. not. Maybe I made that up. Maybe I wished he was. I don't there know. There was nothing. There was nothing online that I could find about him being in that. So I don't know. Now, I've always been fond of Blue Devil, both before and after his transformation into an actual demon, so I was excited to read his first appearance. I should have known better, uh, because this comic is not good. Oh, yeah. Uh, setting aside the laughable trope of the working-class schmuck that invents a ridiculous battle suit in his workshop, see also the Beetle, the Shocker, pretty much every 60s Marvel villain. Everything about his origin is ridiculous. Uh, his movie is filming in the most capital E evil looking ruins. And his co-stars, famous actors, by the way, just decide to go wandering around as if they'd never seen a horror movie before. On top of that, the archaeologists who discovered the place, quote unquote, probably took out anything valuable. Of course they did. That's a really so lost Ark. They don't leave shit laying yeah, around. You know, that's, it's, that's how archaeology works. Yeah, like Belloc uh, doesn't just like leave priceless, you know, shit sure. laying around. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So when they find an equally evil looking artifact, what could go wrong other than the entire field of archaeology crumbling to ruins? <laughs> uh, again, they've never seen this movie, I guess. Uh, naturally, the demon Neberos is released onto the earthly plane and the the only one around to stop him is the jock with the super suit. A stray blast from Neboros traps Danny in the suit. End of issue. Now, as we discussed with Rhino, I have always had uh, logistical questions <laughs> about characters like this. <laughs> so props to Mishkin and Cone for actually trying to address them. Due to the magical nature of the transformation, the suit actually acts like a second skin with sweat and everything. Uh, so he can probably pee and poop and eat and fart and all that other all shit. All of it. Yeah. No, Cause like, he's not just like trapped in the suit. Like he is the suit now. Well, the suit, uh, it's complicated because he does not become an actual demon until many years later, I suppose, but he so, is sweating in this one. Right. So like the suit is bonded to him in a way that it becomes part of his body. Like, so his bodily, like his bodily functions presumably still work normally. I would, I would, I would guess. Uh, they don't really get into it in this issue. He can still like, you know, pull it. Yeah. You know, you can still get a boner. Right? You know, <laughs> yeah, you're talking right? about, you're talking about going to the bone you zone. Get a blue demon boner, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's a win. I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe. I mean, maybe it's. Uh, maybe that's in the pro about. column. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Unfortunately, the rest of their story is complete nonsense. And the dialogue is even worse. Holy shit. Oh yeah. Paris Collins's art is mostly good, uh, though his faces get absolutely bizarre. And he makes a lot of weird layout choices. Like there's a panel where the blue devil is like leaping into action. And for some reason, the cropping of the panel is like from the middle of his chest and up. <laughs> so you only see him from like the armpits up. And I'm like, what? why is this framed this way? It almost seems like, the, yeah, some of it almost seemed like they were like, well, these drawings aren't going to work, but if we cut them and stick them in sure, here like right, this, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, maybe yeah, it could be <laughs> like decoupage. Uh, yeah. decoupage, <laughs> Exactly. Uh, I still like blue devil as a character, but I should have left his first appearance a mystery. I'm giving blue devil number one. I'll leave it. Okay. I love 
Blue Devil's a character. But the reason I love Blue Devil's a character is because the idea is so goddamn stupid. <laughs> okay. What you essentially have here is imagine, remember the movie Congo? It's a terrible yeah. movie, right? Where like, uh, you know, all the B, like all the B list actors of the time, like team up with a gorilla that speaks sign language and they go to the, the fucking jungle and they fight a bunch of man eating gorillas to like find a stone or some shit. So imagine mm -hmm. if this were the making of that movie and the person that was inside the gorilla suit, Amy, who spoke sign language, ran into a, a demon gorilla, fought off said demon gorilla, and became a superhero. That is what right. you've got. You know, a gorilla-themed superhero. One of the things that, I got, that just kept hitting me was like, the stakes are so goddamn low. They released a demon from hell. A right. giant demon from hell. Yeah. And it right. literally kills no one. <laughs> like, That's this, true. Yeah, I don't think it does. The film crew does a pretty good job of holding off a like, giant even the, the cameraman fights him off with a bulldozer. Yeah, and like stuff. gets it up there. Like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm being a hero. You know, like, what? It's like, you mess with one of us, you mess with all right. of us. The stakes could not be lower here. Right. Yeah. Neberos is not a very threatening. Yeah. Thing. And you could tell, you know, they, Blue Demon strikes me as one of those characters where somebody drew a picture that was cool and they they're like, that's cool. Why don't we make a character out of that? And like, yeah, we can't just make up a demon, though. Demons are bad guys. Like, I don't know. What if it was just like a dude in a suit? Like, oh, I got a better idea. <laughs> like, stop right. it. No, this is yeah, terrible. Yeah. It's it's bad. Like, I, I like I, I love the I, I do love the the general idea of it. Yeah. Like, it, but, but literally uh, only because it's so dumb. Admit it. Right. It's yes. only because no, it's, it's so dumb. Now, it's later true. on, he does become a demon. Stuff goes down. He did show up in Justice League Dark as a bad guy, and he was coming oh. to kill Detective Chimp for some stuff that he did. The James Tinian issue, uh, Justice League Dark number six. So was that? So that was was that the first incarnation of Justice? No, League this Dark? was like 2018. So this wasn't long ago. Oh, okay. So years. all right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe they just stopped updating the Blue Devil Wikipedia after he Probably. stopped appearing in the I new I don't video. know that Blue Devil fans are real active on that wiki, so... Yeah, and, yeah, probably not. This is probably a call-out, Blue Devil fans. Step your game up, all right? Get your house in order, guys. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm giving this to leave it. It's terrible. Yeah, it but with that said, it doesn't make me love the character any less. It, it's just no. one of those, like, stupid DC ideas that is enduring. Like Detective Chimp. Same thing. Pretty dumb idea. Love the character. <laughs> sure. So let's completely switch gears and talk about Concrete Strange Armor number one from Dark Horse 1997. This was written and drawn by Paul Chadwick. And Paul Chadwick is one of the most impressive, incredible, double threat comic book creators out there that has pretty much solely focused on Concrete as a character and that story. He's, he's had a few jobs here and there. He may be, like I said, he may be one of the most talented comic creators you've never heard of. Outside of his work on Marvel's Dazzler series, two issues of Why the Last Man, and we just discovered two issues of a Doctor Strange mini, Chadwick has been writing the story of a man trapped inside a concrete body since his first appearance in Dark Horse Presents number one in 1984. The bulk of the story deals with Ron Lithgow's life after he was kidnapped by aliens and his brain was transplanted into a hulking concrete body. Chadwick did not focus on the sci-fi aspects at all, but explored the more human side of the character. 
almost like a what if Ben Grimm wasn't an adventure seeker, but an English major turned speechwriter for a progressive senator. This series focuses on the actual origin of concrete, and it is the stuff of high strangeness nightmares right out of the UFO abduction playbook. Ron is visiting his ex-girlfriend to get the rest of his stuff, including his camping gear, before climbing a mountain with a friend and co-worker. The two are kidnapped by giant rock creatures near a cave and then laid on tables where machines harvest their brains. They awake in the same rocky bodies as their captors and even get a glance of their old bodies, obviously being used by the aliens at that yeah. point. Why? I don't know, but okay. Just, uh, maybe that's later on in the book. But. They're just checking it out. You know, that's not important. Chadwick's art is extremely realistic and almost a Daniel Klaus traditional draftsman type style. It's obviously art schooled and it makes this story even more bizarre and terrifying. If you've never read concrete, do not start here. There's a complete concrete that includes all the early stories that are amazing weird slice of life stories about a man trapped in an alien body and reading those prepares you for Ron revisiting his traumatic origin. And it's truly comic book storytelling at some of its best. This is a massive buy it. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to actually disagree with you a little bit. I've never read concrete before this, uh, which we discussed briefly before we recorded and I was blown away, blown away. And now maybe I would have a larger appreciation for this particular story. If I'd read, that's what I'm saying. The emotional payoff that this story hits you with in the journey of the character. Cause before this, we just, this was like, barely mentioned it was thoughts that he had you know yeah like like, uh, so like this uh this this story just for context this story was collected uh strange armor was collected in concrete volume six right so he didn't get to it for years um but i was still blown away by the emotional journey of the character i mean yes i always recommend starting at the beginning but uh being that this was the origin I was like, if I had jumped in with any other random concrete story, maybe I would feel differently. But as this was an origin piece, uh, I thought that Chadwick really deftly handled um, the background material without, you know, punishing anybody just coming in. Oh, most definitely. And I'm just strictly speaking of emotional payoff for the journey of this. Well, sure. Like if you, if we're going to recommend, if we're going to recommend concrete, we're not going to say we start with volume six, but um, like this was my first exposure to concrete. I absolutely loved it. The art is breathtaking. It is so, it is so good. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It is kind of like, I mean, Daniel Klaus, yeah, but it's also even more like Daniel Klaus's art is kind of disturbing. Uh, it's not realistic necessarily, um, but uh, there's something sinister about Daniel Klaus's art. This is more like, um, I want to say it's kind of like Bernie Wrightson-esque if we're not talking about like Bernie Wrightson drawing monsters. If we're just talking okay. about Bernie, Bernie Wrightson drawing people in an environment um, you know, like living their lives or Mike Plug or, or somebody like that. I, and, um, Mike Plug, I can see that. I, and I guess I'm just speaking to like the level of realism. That yeah. Can bring I mean, it's certainly, this is certainly so like weird. real world, like, and the environments are, are, uh, the environments are, are, are really wonderful. Like the way he draws the, um, you know, the mountains and the forests, yeah. and all of this stuff. 
but yeah, no, this was really, really wonderful. And it, I love how alien it is. It like yeah. uh, his encounter with these uh, uh, rock aliens um, is exactly what a story, an alien story like this should be. Absolutely. Where it's like, these guys are here. They don't understand what's happening. Even if the aliens are talking to them, they don't understand. Right. And it, it's just nothing but terror and panic. Yeah. As it's, things happen to you, you that you can't explain. It's alien abduction shit where it's like there's yeah. no rhyme. There's no reason. You are completely right. out of control. You don't know why they're doing it. It's you don't know terrifying. what they've done. Right. And all you can do is react to what's going on. And uh, like it, it happens where his friend kind of retreats into his own head and they meet a third guy who's just kind of lost it completely, you know, the third and so guy was a bear. You didn't pick up on was that? It a bear. It was a bear. I, didn't, I, didn't, I guess <laughs> yeah. I didn't. Maybe I read it too quickly. I, I guess I didn't pick up on that. If you look but, at that uh, scene where they see their bodies, it's two dudes standing with a bear. Well, uh, Oh, you're right. It is two dudes and a bear. Yeah. Good call. I didn't see that. Yeah. Cause that's the thing. It's like this, uh, these aliens. They, oh no, no, no. No, the bear is one of the aliens. Oh, right. Well, the body's in the alien. Yes, the bear. These the aliens, aliens just the came body. and like took some brains and yeah, put I themselves guess that's, into I guess it. that's probably true. I guess I just assumed that the bear was one of the aliens, but it is. It is, but in the way that the aliens are also yeah. walking around. But it's also suit. like roaring and out of control. Yeah, I, and, and when like, they're like, I guess it, it just, where'd they it find just, you? Uh, it's like, oh, oh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, it's very guttural. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, I missed that. Good call. Um, but yeah. Uh, Tremendous by it. I could go on and on. I only read the first chapter. Um, I definitely am going to go back and finish this volume. Uh, well, maybe I'll go back and read volume one first. But uh, we read the first chapter of volume six, which is issue one of Strange Armor. Uh, it's a huge buy it. Uh, concrete. Wow. Tremendous. Yeah. Incredible stuff. My final review of the week goes to Astro City, Volume 2, number 14 from Wildstorm. It was 1998. Written by Kurt Busiek with art by Brent Anderson. Carl Donowitz was a garden variety street tough who volunteered for an experiment that turned him into a being of living metal in the hopes of making a name for himself as a supervillain. For a time, Carl ran as a member of the Terrifying Three alongside his partners Cutlass and the original Quiver, not to be confused with Quiver 2. Well, I don't know who Quiver 2 is. After they were finally captured, Carl spent several years in prison, which brings us to this issue. The thing that Astro City does best is get to the heart of each of its characters, even the villains, and Steeljack is no exception. After one too many failures as a criminal, Carl accepts his fate and serves his sentence peacefully, for the most part. Now he's an old man, washed up and rudderless. His status as a metallic ex-con makes him impossible to hire until a group of people like him in the, in the sense that they are former criminals, uh, seek his help in protecting them from a new generation of violent criminals. Kurt Busiek's writing is always at its strongest when he's at home in Astro city. You really feel for Carl's plight through his internal monologue and his frustration as he finds that there's no more place for him in this world. Even his parole officer, who knows better, says, maybe you should try living abroad, <laughs> which is illegal for an, uh, a recent parolee. Even Astro City's superheroes are on his case, not trusting that he's been truly rehabilitated. Carl would go on to a happy ending of sorts, but it's a hard road, and this is just the start. 
Uh, I know we make fun of it sometimes, but there's nobody better at casting real life people as comic book characters than Alex Ross. Oh yeah. Here, uh, he's patterned Steel Jack after a later in life Robert Mitchum uh, with his sunken face and sagging jowls. J- like just one look at the covers to this story arc and you like, it's Robert Mitchum. Oh yeah, no question. <laughs> uh, it's great. It's so great. Uh, the legendary Brent Anderson is able to stick to that design without leaning so much on the photorealism. So we still kind of invoke that character without saying, without being distracted by the fact that it's a famous person. His use of thick lines and heavy shadows bring the seedier elements of Astro City to life. Uh, Astro City 14, like every issue, is a wonderfully heartbreaking look into the life of one of its superpowered inhabitants. This gets a huge buy it from me. Yeah. I mean, this could be the story of the Sandman later in life or Crusher Creel Molten or man. Yeah, yeah, it could be that this could be the rhino, you any, know, for it, all, could, it could be any of them. any one of Spidey's villains basically later yep. on in life. when they're like, I'm just too old to do this shit anymore. Yep. And that's what makes Astro city so great. And it's just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. What does an old super villain do? Where do you go? Like that's right. the thing you don't think about when you're getting ready for the, for the operation and they're going to turn your skin into steel or whatever. Like think about, the thought process that goes into getting a face tattoo because your life's going to change, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Things are going to be different. Once you yeah, get your yeah. tattoo, you know, tattoo on your face, people are right. going to be like, Oh shit, you have a face tattoo. <laughs> you know, like, right now let's take that a step further and think about like the choices that go into, I'm going to get into a suit. I can never get out of, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, uh, it really examines like that, the end of that decision you know which- right yeah and you know what something else i really liked is that um steel jack uh is treated almost like the anti uh, pardon me the bizarro ben Grimm, yeah in the sense that like not in the sense that you know the first family and all that stuff but in the sense that like he's a guy from the neighborhood the neighborhood knows him yeah, he's not a ex- bad but, guy but you know? in but as opposed to the yancey street the neighborhood celebrates him. He's like one of theirs. He's like, Hey, welcome home. We heard you were getting out. Welcome home. Yeah. Uh, and uh, like, I was like, Oh, that's nice. Well, but it, there's a also bunch like of mooks this- just like him, you know, they're like, yeah, right. hey, well, you know, we're hard, you know, it's like, yeah. Bastard. Uh, we're like, yeah, you robbed some banks. He ain't a bad guy. You know, what are you supposed to do these days? <laughs> you know? But there's also like that. There's also that like Shawshank redemption vibe. Like when, uh, when you see, um, uh, Brooks and later red, uh, get released from prison, they get paroled and Brooks, uh, you know, he gets the job bagging groceries and sure. he just, he's like, fuck this. And he kills himself. Yeah. And, and so there is that vibe here where Carl is like trying so hard to get a straight job and he just can't. Well, now imagine Brooks like had steel skin and he hung himself and nothing fucking happened. Right. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. <laughs> that's the hard part. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's what's so great about Astro City. It's a huge buy it from me as well. Joe, try as we might, we can't seem to get away from this new 52 business. I am talking about Batman annual number one. It was the very first Batman annual and it didn't happen until it's so weird because you know it's so weird because there was another annual number one you did that came out in 1986 or seven or whatever year that was such a bugaboo of mine and maybe Mm. we will talk about that sometime on cover to cover your comic bugaboos but like I fucking hate that we can't just have annuals continue with numbers it's stupid I think annuals are a stupid concept in general that have no place in the comic industry they're dumb if you want to do an annual fine but number it with the year it should just be Batman annual 2012 
Batman right. Annual 2019. I mean, there was a there was a business reason why they existed back in the day, but now it's just done. I get it. So no annual number, nothing. An annual is one a year. Shut up. This was right. written by Scott Snyder and James Tinney in the Four, with art by Jason Fabic. Mr. Freeze and Batman's past began with his first appearance way back uh, in Batman 121. This was in 1959. But back then, he was going by Mr. Zero. And he was just another gimmick character created by Bob Kane and Sheldon Moldoff. Later in the 60s, he would be renamed Mr. Freeze, but it wasn't until Batman the Animated Series of the 90s that we meant the freeze we know and love today, thanks to Paul Dini. Dini's version had all the modern trappings of the character. He's a mad genius, driven insane by his wife's terminal diagnosis, who Victor Freeze has cryogenically frozen to give him more time to research her condition. After Goth Corp's CEO Ferris Boyle stops funding the research and pulls the plug on Nora, causing an accident that transforms Victor Freeze into Mr. Freeze, Due to his body temperature dropping below frozen temps, Mr. Freeze develops a suit to keep him alive and turns to a life of crime to fund his research and suit upkeep because that shit's expensive. This annual hit in the middle of Snyder's Night of the Owls crossover and it updates Mr. Freeze's origin subtly. It begins with his mother falling through thin ice on a lake in Lowell, Nebraska, which is a real place. I had to look it up. Mom is preserved by the cold temps and it triggers something in Vic. He sees Why that. did you why did you look it up? Just because it's in Nebraska and you were like, I wonder if that's real. Yeah, I'd never heard of it. I just looked it All up. Right. Lowell, Nebraska. Fair enough. Real place. But he sees his mom go underwater. He thinks she's dead. She's later rescued. They bring her back to life and he gets this weird idea in his head that like maybe being frozen ain't so bad. He starts like freezing animals to see if he can bring them back to life and stuff. It's like it's kind of gross. Victor is in a cell at this point in Arkham Asylum, recounting his childhood to a psychologist that mentions he was caught while helping the owls bring their soldiers, the Talons, back to life. Of course, he escapes and he heads to the Penguins Iceberg Casino to get his freeze guns. And then it's after Bruce Wayne, who's been keeping Nora alive. Vic, of course, thinks Wayne stole his wife and wants to take her and get out of Gotham. We see a flashback to six years ago in this new 52 continuity where Victor was working for Wayne Tech in their cryonics department and keeping Nora alive. Later, Bruce comes to shut down Vic's research as it's getting pretty creepy. They have a fight. Nora gets unplugged. Vic is covered in freezing fluid. So now Bruce created Mr. Freeze in this new 52 continuity. We find out that Nora is not in fact his wife, but just a frozen woman he became obsessed with after the events of his childhood, seeing his mom frozen and brought back to life. Now, I do not love the New 52 continuity crushing Freeze's story into the last six years and Bruce Wayne being responsible for his transformation, but I love Snyder and Tinian's small additions to his origin that make the character even more disturbed. It definitely removes the romance from Dini's Heart of Ice episode of the animated series, which made the character much more sympathetic. But I really like this creepy twist. <laughs> Fabok's art is just simply amazing. This, this guy was born to draw Batman the same way that Gary Frank was born to draw Superman. Full stop. Like, if, if they said to me today, Matt, 
only one artist is allowed to draw Batman for the rest of your life. I would say, okay, it's Jason Fabok. That's fine. I would probably still say Gary. Frank. <laughs> that guy is amazing. I think Gary Frank is the answer to most, uh, most questions like that. Well, and the same goes for Superman. They said you can pick one person. I'd yeah. Like, I mean, Jason, Jason Fabok, Gary is, Frank. That is, is really great. He draws yeah. my Superman for the rest of my life. I am giving this a buy it regardless of the continuity crushing stuff. It's All right. still a cool so, issue. I mean, I have thoughts about that. Uh, on the positive side, if you consider that Batman first appeared in what, 1939 and Mr. Freeze didn't appear until 1959. Sure. Uh, you know, you and could then, make an argument that in a compacted timeline, Mr. Freeze didn't show up until four years into Batman's crime fighting career. Yeah. I'm just not crazy about like Bruce Wayne being the guy. That yeah. Created. I mean, Bruce That's- Wayne being the guy that did it is kind of, is kind of whatever, but um, I'm also torn I'm torn about the twist, the Nora twist, because while at first I was like, Ooh, yeah, that makes Mr. Freeze, Mr. Freeze way grosser. I also kind of love the tragic love angle. Yeah. I like that traditional Mr. Freeze. And I get it. So I, I, I'm of two minds about that. Um, but this issue is very good. And this was our first, uh, this was our, I believe our first real meeting with the future superstar, James Tinian, the four. And uh, also, I think Jason Fabok was pretty new onto the scene. And yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if this was one of his first issues. And uh, it's just very, very well done. I don't know. This is a buy it. This is a buy it. I am conflicted about the origin in general, but uh, I do love this issue. And uh, I was you. You mentioned it early on about how it was the animated series that kind of gave us the Mister Freeze we all know, right in our heads. When we think of Mister Freeze, we just involuntarily think of the Nora thing. Yeah. Um, and I had to scour my memory banks to see if I could remember a pre-crisis, not only a, not only a pre-1992 appearance, but even a pre, just pre-1992 appearance of Mr. Freeze. And I cannot. Uh, yeah. Mr. Freeze, he's a cool character who like literally has, is a blank slate prior to the one thing everybody knows him from. All right, everyone. Chill. Matt, before the Cosmic Long Box will allow us back in our proper timeline, we each need to pick our favorite comic from this pile and our favorite character that's trapped in their suit. Doesn't so have to comic? be from these comics, by the way. Yeah, if you've got a different one, that can you can pick that. Mm, fair enough. So, which comic is getting trapped in the THN permanent collection? It's concrete. It's concrete strange armor number one, period. Yeah, I mean... I, yeah, I don't know why I'm it, fighting my, it. That's what it is. My favorite character trapped in a suit is Mr. Freeze. I love that villain. He's so great because he is so stupid. Like he came from a really dumb golden age, silver age idea and was fleshed out into this amazing character. And then Arnold Schwarzenegger played him and made him even better. That's a yeah, joke. Totally <laughs> that is a joke. I totally did. I just love the idea of Mr. Freeze. I love the way he looks in his suit. I love his cool fucking guns. You know, like he's just a rad Bat villain, and he's completely unlike anyone else in Batman's Rogues Gallery. Yes, and you know, um, Mr. Freeze is great. Um, my pick for a comic to keep is Concrete, uh, and you can you can argue that maybe there are better uh, or more relevant Concrete stories to keep, and that's probably true. But 
for this uh, for the purposes of this exercise this was being this being my first exposure to concrete uh, I was blown away yeah and uh, so concrete is the one I would keep uh, my favorite as much as I love wildfire my favorite character trapped in a suit is rhino I love the rhino I love the rhino too I do I love him I every time the rhino shows up I am excited I think that character is so great Want to read along with THN? You can find each episode's review list on our Twitter and Facebook weekly on Tuesdays. That's before it comes out, so you can read along. And don't forget to check our Instagram feed to see our covers of the week every Wednesday. I've had a couple questions like, what are these? Like, going to be worth money or something? No, it's not what this is. It's not speculation. It's just covers. It has nothing of the- to do with it. Yeah, they're just it, covers we like. That's it. You can find those every Wednesday on our Instagram. We give a little shout out to the artists if you want to start following them. And you should because a lot of them are great follows. Also, let us know what you thought about all of these comics, your favorite heroes trapped in suits, and anything you read this week on our live call-in show, THN, cover to cover. We do it every Saturday on our Faces book, and we do it live from 11 to noon Central Standard Time. October is finally here, which means spooky season is upon us, so I hope you're ready for some scary new reads. Matt, can you take a break from sorting your Betamax tapes and laser discs for your annual classic horror binge and tell these kids about your must-read pick for next week? You laugh, but I still have Betamax tapes and laser discs downstairs because I am wretchedly old. My pick for next week is DC Horror Presents Soul Plumber, number one of six, which is the official... Thanks a lot, Hill House. Sorry, it didn't work out. <laughs> I guess. This is from DC Comics. It's $4.99. It's written by Ben Kissel, Marcus Parks, and Henry Zabrowski. Joe Patrick saying, who the hell are these guys? With art by John McRae. I'll tell you who they are. From the creators of the last podcast on the left, which is a wonderful show if you don't listen to it, exorcism just got a whole lot easier. After attending a seminar hosted in a hotel conference room by a mysterious group called the Soul Plumbers, Edgar Wiggins, disgraced former seminary school student, discovers what he thinks is the secret to delivering souls from the thrall of Satan. But after stealing the blueprints and building the machine himself out of whatever he can afford from his salary as a gas station attendant, Edgar misses the demon and instead pulls out an interdimensional alien with dire consequences for all of mankind. This is like that scene in Army of Darkness where Ash goes to say the words, but he mainly says most of them. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I love the last podcast on the left. It is fantastic. They do these deep dives into like serial killers and weird stories and like UFOs and Sasquatch and shit. If you've never checked it out, it is a riot. All three of them have like some Hollywood experience. They were writers, comedians, whatnot. One of them, I believe uh, Marcus Parks, who is the smart guy, is just like the researcher, but he's great. So I really hope this is good. I love John McRae. So I'm gonna check out anything he's drawn. Yeah, same. My pick is the spooky, amazing Spider-Man 75. (laughs) The return of the spooky Ben (laughs) Riley. (laughs) It's from Marvel. It's $5.99. It's written by Zeb Wells with art by Patrick Gleason. Here's your solicit. 
You didn't tell me we were doing spooky picks. I didn't pick a spooky No, no, no. I just, I, you yeah. know, I just figured out. I get it. It's a bit. Amazing Spider-Man is back to thrice monthly because this story is pure jet fuel. Fuck yeah. Pump I want to buy it three times a month. <laughs> pump the brakes. Pump the brakes, guys. Yeah. Ben Riley has returned to New York City and has fully taken back the mantle of Spider-Man. But what does that mean for Peter Parker? The greatest team of web writers, yada, yada, yada. The most epic arachnid artist ever, yada, yada, yada. Bring you a spider story that will shake up Spider-Man's 59th year. Not the 60th year. Don't get comfy, Ben. In ways you cannot predict. They had this plan written a little while ago, and they're putting it out three times monthly because they need to get it over with in time no, for no, the no. 60th I don't, anniversary shit. I don't think that's true. No, I think <laughs> that they think knew... So? No, I think that they purposefully planned this to lead into the 60th anniversary. Why are we doing it three times a month if they're not trying to get it over? Uh, I don't know, because it's six months until the... Oh, pardon it's six me. Mon- it's six months until the... Uh, pardon me. It's pure jet fuel. That's it's pure. Yeah, because it's pure jet fuel. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, I read today the conclusion of Nick Spencer's run on the book, uh, Amazing Spider-Man 74, which for some reason is only a week removed from this next issue. Um, And I have to say, for as critical as I was of Nick Spencer's run, um, I kind of liked this wrap-up and the way he tied things together and how he brought back uh, the twins and the whole, like, mind-fuck thing with Harry and Norman. And, like, I thought it ended on a good note. Uh, It definitely cleared the decks for Ben Riley's return. And I am eager to find out what that all means because... I didn't get to read the free comic book day uh, lead-in story, uh, which they definitely alluded to this week. So I need to track that down and then get ready for next week. The THN trade of the week goes to Orcs in Space! The trade paperback. That's a Muppets reference. You don't know it? You're too fucking young. Screw you. You shouldn't be listening to the show. It's from Oni Press. It's fifteen ninety nine. Please don't stop listening to the show. It's written by Michael Tanner with art by... Francois. Francois. Vignolt. Vignolt. Yeah, Vignolt. There you go. Here's your solicit. Get ready to Harlorp. Gore, Kravis, and Mongtar are just three orcs trying to survive while on the run from everything and everyone on their homeworld. When the naive bureaucrats from Starbleep land on the planet, Muckball, the orcs unwittingly steal the most advanced ship in the fleet and blast into the dankest reaches of the outer Galacticon. After befriending the ship's AI, D period O period N period A, Donna. I'm thinking, yeah, Donna. The gang must evade everything from pacifier-sucking bounty hunters to raucous nightclubs to steampunk space rats. The cosmos will never be the same thanks to orcs in space. Joe Patrick, tell the kids why you picked this one because I don't even know what the fuck it is. Neither do I, but it looked fun. Fair I enough. picked it because it looks fun, uh, and the solicit got me. It you know. sounds uh, like... I love a good Pigs in Space reference. Yeah, 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 I do too. It sounds like uh, everything I hate about raves in the 90s <laughs> written in outer space with orcs. You know? Well, I think that's kind of the point, right? I think it's. I think the pacifier-sucking bounty hunters and uh, is supposed to be dumb. Right. But um, yeah, it, it looks super fun. Um, I don't know these creators, uh, but uh, the cover looked great, and uh, yeah, I'm just—I just think it'll be a fun time. Fair enough. Oni Press—they put out good shit. You can trust. They them. do. 
be sure to pre-order these comics if you're looking for a quality read. And also, don't forget to check out the Take a Look. It's in a book club read for September. Jeff Smith's Tukey. You've got one more week to do so. Matt Baum is going to tell you why in just a second. Excelsior! (laughs) That is it for THN 637. And next week, we are back reviewing new comics. And we're going to give you nerds a taste of our Patreon-exclusive Take a look, it's in a book club where, just like Joe mentioned, we're discussing Jeff Smith's new prehistoric venture, Tukey Fight for Fire, with our very own Wooly Toots. Now, if you want to rap about this week's episode or any of the weekly nerdy news that we're following, hit us up on our live call-in show, THN, cover to cover, every Saturday, 11 Central Standard Time. It's hosted on our Facebook page. I would love to hear about some characters that are trapped in suits that we forgot about. Hellstrike is a good example. There are lots, Fuji, Hellstrike. And don't forget about the question of the week. This week's question was submitted by Scott Evil via the very uh, sparse THN forums. Thank you, Scott. I think you're going away. I think we should stop. Uh, I mean, like one of these days, I'm just going to push the button and explode them because I'm tired of reading about soccer Well, we just open the airlock and we inject them into space. Yeah, just like just just like the xenomorph yeah. in uh, seven out of the ten alien movies. In the vein of sins past becoming continuity past, what are your favorite and least favorite retcons? Now, for those of you that don't know, retcon stands for retroactive continuity, which means establishing something uh, into a character's history that was not previously there. For example, usually it's a fix. Sometimes it's a fix. Sometimes it's a revelation. For example, retcon. Nora Freeze is not Mr. Freeze's wife. Right. That's a retcon. Yeah. Uh, Norman Osborn survived getting impaled at the end of Amazing Spider-Man 121. Yeah. That's a retcon. And um, had twins. And uh, <laughs> well, well, I mean, but later. also <laughs> that got uh, erasing since past. Yeah, that also retcon, retcon got retcon. <laughs> right. Uh, staying with Spider-Man, Scott loves Brand New Day and will defend it at length. But the spider totem idea is just nonsense. If you can come uh, up with a retconned you, retcon, you get bonus points. All right. Something that's been retconned. <laughs> oh, I can give you a retconned retconned. Uh, the multiverse, DC's multiverse. No, it that got doesn't retconned count. away and then got retconned back. Too big. I'm talking. I want. Yeah, I want like too, a real retcon. Retcon. Big. I know. I get it. Uh, we do need question of the week suggestions, so please send us uh, send those to us via email. You can also send them to us on Twitter, Facebook. You can call us at 402-819-4894 or join our Zoom by clicking on the link in our Facebook Live video chat during Cover to Cover. And if you can't be there live, shoot an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com or leave a message on the hotline or you can also leave your question of the week suggestions. Sure. Your ask a nerd questions. It's how you your play comic along. pushers. Yes. Yeah. We want you here with us. Yeah. So please. Also, we don't want to do that much work. So please give us ideas. Uh, also, we'll make you internet lonely. famous. We're rich. We will make you internet famous. We're we so are. We lonely. are lonely. Uh, <laughs> if you if you doubt that we'll make you internet famous, just listen to last week's cover to cover and listen to Lord Stephen Fino's call. The cautionary it, tale of Lord Stephen Fino. It almost ruined his life. Yeah. 
Uh, however, if you are going to email in a recording or leave a voice message, please try to keep it to two minutes or less. Uh, the voicemail will actually cut you off. That's nothing we can control. Uh, but we have a lot of air to share with the people that come in live. That is a thing we can control. I said it to two minutes. <laughs> oh, you did? Oh, well, you don't need to tell them that. I was just going to blame Google, but all right. If you're new to this show and you wish someone would retcon us out of existence with two people that actually knew what they were talking about when it came to comic books, I assure sorry, you. Pardon me. One of us doesn't know what they're talking about. Yeah. I assure you, it's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire Random THN in a digital long box. You can find that over at TwoHeadedNerd.com. But hosting that many episodes, it ain't cheap. So we want to thank donors like Mr. Bo Conroy, one of John Luttrell's only friends. All right? <laughs> and that is saying something. Bo, you're a goddamn survivor, man. And we appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. <laughs> Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to Jonathan Hickman. This week's Inferno number 1 marks the beginning of the end for his initial tenure on the X-Men that changed their status quo in ways we couldn't have imagined. Word to you, Mr. Hickman, and here's to hoping Marvel can wrestle you back from Substack to finish what you started. Yeah, they're paying him a pretty penny, so we'll see. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just tell you they're only coming out in email format anymore. This is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off. But first, your onomatopoeia of the week. Hello. This is Old Clock, the one that hungers. Your onomatopoeia of the week is... Is the sound of Loki hitting Thor in the face with a safety zone sign in Thor issue 153 published by Marvel Comics in the year 1968 of the Human Calendar. Now I return to the deep. Until the stars are right again and we return in glory. Dagen, Dagen, Lam, Lam, Dagen.